Amen. If you have your Bibles, I invite you, if you would, to take them out, turn them on, and join me in the very last chapter of the Gospel of Acts. We have been, I'm sorry, not the Gospel of Acts, the Gospel of Mark. I'm looking, I'm excited, moving too fast. Um, We're reading Acts on Wednesday nights, so I would love for you to join us on Wednesday nights if you want to study the book of Acts at 6 p.m. in the Fellowship Hall. But today we are going to be at the end of the Gospel of Mark as we finally come to our conclusion uh, in this series that we have been in for quite some time titled Astonished and Amazed. I just want to say real quick, Happy Father's Day. Happy Father's Day. I love you. God bless you. Amen. Um, If you are our guest We are excited that you are here. My name is Will, and I get the privilege to serve as pastor here at Spring Creek. And we would love for you, in the guest bag that you got either coming in or in the chair in front of you, there is a Connect card. We would love for you to take that, fill that out. You can leave it in your seat when you're done. We'll collect that so that we can know how we can better uh, minister to you and connect with you in ministry in the days ahead. And as I said, we are in Mark chapter 15 and 16 together as we are concluding uh, this look in the Gospel of Mark. And it's here at the end uh, of this, it's summertime, and my family has been um, recently at uh, my in-law's pool quite a bit. And it's that time of year when you're out and you're about and it's hot and the water is still just a little bit cool. Now, I don't know about you, my, my father-in-law likes to get in it when it's like bath water temperature. I find that that is completely um, just against the point to jump into a swimming pool if it's bath water temperature. But nevertheless, I find myself, especially early uh, here in the season, when the water is still a little bit cold, that there is just this, this timidity and this fear to just dive right in. You know, you got to work your way in just a little bit at a time, and you kind of got to get it. And eventually, you've got to make yourself just take the plunge. My boys, they don't care. It can be 69 degrees in the thing, and they can jump right in, teeth chattering, and they're swimming, and they're all right, and they're there inside the pool screaming, Daddy, jump in. Daddy, get in. Daddy, it's great. And here I am just creeping and creeping a little bit at a time, just timid and afraid, knowing that if I just dive all the way in, then things would be better, and things would be great, and I'll get acclimated to it, and I'll be able to have fun. But I'm there, and I'm standing on the edge, and I'm looking at the water, and my mind is saying, jump. And my body is saying no, because that's going to be uncomfortable. When it comes to living the Christian life to its fullest, in faith and in relationship with Jesus Christ, and fulfilling the commands that Jesus has called us to to live in obedience, particularly the command that he left us in the Great Commission to go and tell, Many of us as believers are standing on the ladder, maybe with our toes dipped in the water, and our minds are telling us to jump, and other believers are in the pool swimming in faith and experiencing the joy of a life given over to complete obedience to Jesus Christ, and we are still standing on the ladder paralyzed by either fear on the one hand or our failures on the other. We can be afraid that we don't know enough and that someone is going to ask us all of the difficult questions that we can't answer. And so we stand back paralyzed from stepping forward in total faith and total obedience to declare the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ. Or maybe we stand there and we say, I could never be someone that steps out and speaks for Jesus because the people that are around me, they know my background. They know my failures. 
They know my flaws. I can never measure up. I can never be good enough to be a faithful witness to Jesus. And so we stand there paralyzed in fear. And what we need for those that are afraid of our failures or afraid of, of not knowing enough, what we need is a message of hope that can finally push us over the ledge and into the life that Christ has for us. And as we come to the conclusion of the Gospel of Mark, I believe that Mark gives us just that. Look with me, if you will, in Mark chapter 15, starting in verse 40. We left last week Jesus dying on the cross and the centurion calling out, truly, this man was the Son of God. And Mark picks up in verse 40, there were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James the younger and of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him, and there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should already have died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, you are such a fantastic Father. You are faithful, you are patient, you are present in our lives. And you have done everything necessary to set us free and grant us forgiveness of our sins, to call us into your family, that we might call you Daddy, that we might know you intimately, that we might know you personally, that we might know you in power and in truth as you are present with our lives. Thank you. I pray your hand of blessing be upon every father in this place, and I pray that today each and every one of us would confront those things that paralyze us from living a life of complete obedience to the gospel of Jesus Christ, of complete faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we might be faithful followers of Jesus who boldly share the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ without fear, without hesitation, but in complete and total faith in the power of the gospel to transform lives. So guard us and guide us. Bless this time for your glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. 
As we're here in these verses, just a, a note of housekeeping, you'll notice, especially if you've got your Bibles opened, that I stopped in Mark chapter 16, verse 8. And I said that today is going to be the last time that we uh, spend in the Gospel of Mark as we're finishing here. And if you look in your Bibles, your Bibles will show that Mark goes on from verse, with verses 9 through 20. Most of the modern translations, if you're reading anything other than King James or the New King James, has a footnote there or some type of indication saying that the following verses, 9 through 20, do not appear in the earliest manuscripts. The evidence that I'm convinced of holds that these earliest manuscripts that we have, copies of Mark, don't contain the verses. The oldest church fathers seem to not know of these verses. The language that is found in verses 9 through 20 doesn't really match with what Mark has talked, the language that Mark has used up to this point, and the pace that is there, even though Mark is one who writes at a very quick pace, the pace of verses 9 through 20 don't match the pace of the rest of the gospel of Mark. And so I am convinced of the evidence that verses 9 through 20 are not original to Mark's gospel. If that's the case, then what are they? I believe it's most likely a patchwork of textual references to the other gospel accounts into the book of Acts that was added at a later time by a well-intentioned scribe as an epilogue to provide a summary of all that happened and followed. And he added it some point later after the distribution of Mark's gospel, which actually ends at verse 8. So I cannot, since I have a very high view of Scripture, believing that verses 9 through 20 are not authentic to Mark, who I believe was inspired and guarded over by the Holy Spirit, I cannot treat verses 9 through 20 in the same way that I treat the rest of the gospel, not believing it to be breathed out by the Holy Spirit and therefore not the Word of God. Instead, I think of it more in the lines of what we believe to be true of the apocryphal books that you'll find in the Catholic Bible that exist between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New that are great history and, and provide us some great context, but are still nevertheless not the authoritative word of God. And so I won't preach those verses. The bigger question of whether or not they're authentic is did Mark intend for his gospel to end so abruptly at verse 8? And that's a matter of heated debate, and unfortunately we will not know the answer until we speak to Mark face to face in eternity. Because we don't know. There's no evidence as to whether it is or whether it isn't, everything that's there is speculation. If he did not intend to end at verse 8, then that means that the original ending of Mark is lost, either because Mark never actually got to write it, or because the earliest manuscripts were torn apart or cut off or damaged in some way. Regardless, we have what we have. And I believe that we have enough to finish our look at Mark's gospel and walk away just as the women are in this verse, astonished and amazed by Jesus. Mark communicates some very important things in the verses that we've read this morning. The first thing that he communicates to us is that Jesus was really dead. For many of us, that might go without saying, especially if we've grown up in the church, we've heard our entire lives, Jesus died. He died on the cross for your sins and for my sins, and that's just something that we assume to be true. And it's shocking when all of a sudden we get out into the world and we start interacting with people who don't believe like we believe or who haven't been raised in church and they question whether or not Jesus was really dead. There have been and still are those that would argue that Jesus did not really die. 
There are those that have doubts about this passage of Scripture and what it communicates. And as believers in Jesus Christ, we have an option. We can either ridicule them, or we can recoil in fear of answering the difficult questions, or we can step into the conversation and we can realize that God is big enough to handle people's doubts. Amen? Oswald Chambers once said, doubt is not always a sign that a man is wrong. It may be a sign that he's thinking. And so our doubts are welcomed to the gospel, especially to the resurrection account, as we will see. We see throughout the other gospels that the the disciples themselves doubted, and Jesus did not ridicule them, did not condemn them, did not withdraw from them, but instead he moved towards them and said, see, feel, touch my scars, touch my side, give me some fish that I might eat, that I might prove your doubts. One of the fears that paralyzes us from stepping into a life of faith and obedience to the gospel of Jesus Christ and to share the gospel is we're afraid of tough questions. But we can be asked tough questions and we can know beyond a shadow of a doubt that the Bible's account of the events around the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ are true. Amen? I need you to wake up. I need you to join me on this one. One of the most popular objections to the death of Jesus Christ is what's known as the swoon theory. Even Pilate in this account is shocked when he finds out that Jesus is already dead. Men and women who were crucified, often it took days, even weeks, for them to die. Because as we shared last week, the process of death in crucifixion was that the individual died based on exhaustion and exposure. And so it could take days. In the the instance of Jesus Christ, it only took hours. So Pilate himself questions. And many today will ask the question, he surely didn't die, instead he passed out. And so he passed out on the cross, and they took him down prematurely. But the text of Mark's gospel refutes that right in front of us, because there are witnesses to the fact that Jesus was dead. The first and most important witness is the ones who killed him. The Roman centurion and the guards are there and here in this passage of Scripture to testify that Jesus was dead. In verse 44, Mark hammers that point home twice. Pilate was surprised to hear that Jesus should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether or not he was already dead. In verse 45, the centurion affirms this, and the English translators supply the fact that he was dead. And then Mark is very clear using a very specific word that says that Pilate granted the corpse to Jesus. It's not the typical word for just the body for Jesus. Instead, it is the corpse of Jesus. It is a dead body that is supplied to Joseph of Arimathea. If there was anybody who is good at killing people, it was the Romans. They perfected it. The Assyrians might have come up with the idea of crucifixion, but the Romans perfected it. And the accusation that the Roman soldiers failed to do their job here is a pretty big leap of faith from someone doubting the testimony of the gospel of Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, the rest of the Gospels testify to the fact that they were not sure if Jesus was dead, so what did they do? Just for good measures, they stabbed him in the side. And so the centurions and the Roman soldiers testify that he was dead. 
The other witnesses that we're introduced to in this passage of Scripture that really tie all of these verses together are the women. The two Marys and Salome, who are witnesses to the fact, however they were distanced from it, are witnesses to the fact that at the crucifixion, Jesus died. And they follow Joseph of Arimathea to the tomb where he is buried. And these weren't just women who didn't know. We'll see in just a minute ago. These weren't just women on the sidelines. These were women who were intimately involved in the ministry of Jesus Christ. And they are testifying that Jesus was really dead. The third witness is Joseph of Arimathea, who can see that he is dead, who steps out an amazing step of faith as he approaches Pilate and he defies the Sanhedrin and he asks for the body of Jesus Christ. It was Roman rule and Roman law that someone that was crucified as a criminal, especially someone who was crucified as high treason, was not allowed a proper burial, but it was instead left on the cross to decay or they were just thrown into a mass grave. Joseph of Arimathea does not want to see this, and in a step of faith and love and devotion to Jesus Christ, finally steps out of the Sanhedrin and towards Jesus in a step of faith, requesting the body. And he does not just take the body, he cares for the body. As was Jewish custom, before he wrapped it in the linen and the spices that we know that he had, a hundred pounds of which, he would have washed that body, cared for Christ's body. Do you think that a man who washed and tended and wrapped and cared for the body would have realized he was breathing even if he was asleep? The other problem with the swoon theory, when we talk about the rest of the testimonies of the, of the gospel, means that Jesus passed out on the cross. And this man who was beaten in one of the most horrendous ways imaginable, such that possibly his ribs and his internal organs were exposed, was pierced as he was hung on the cross, was stabbed in the side, was dehydrated, exhausted, destroyed, then wrapped in linen cloths that was combined with 100 pounds of spices, laid in a tomb, somehow laid there for two and a half days, and got up enough strength with no food, no water, no medical care, no nothing, got out of all of that stuff, and rolled a massive stone out of the way, then to confront a guard of Roman soldiers on the outside and walk away unscathed. Jesus didn't merely swoon and pass out on the cross. He died. And that matters because as Paul points out in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. The price of our sins is death. Not almost death. Not near death. Death. If Jesus didn't die, then he did not pay the price for your sins or my sins, and we are damned. It matters that Jesus really died. We need a Savior who took all of the punishment that we deserve and not just part of it. Jesus had to really die that we might be really saved. But Jesus didn't only really die. Mark also wants us to see that this one who really died was also really raised. Just as there are those who question Jesus' death, there are many more who question his resurrection. There are many even within that would say that they are in Christianity, that they are believers who reject the possibility of miracles, create some type of alternate explanation for what happened at the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There are some that would say, first and foremost, most simply, that in the darkness of the early hours of Sunday morning, the women got confused and they went to the wrong tomb. 
right? It's the simplest explanation. But Mark is very clear that these women not only saw from a distance him die, but they went with Joseph of Arimathea, not only to the tomb, but into the tomb. They knew exactly where it was. These women knew exactly where Jesus was laid and was buried, and that is exactly where they went to on Sunday morning. There's no question for them. Others would argue that they were mistaken, not only the women, but the disciples of Jesus Christ, that instead that some imposter showed up, that it was some elaborate scheme, and that someone who showed up that resembled Jesus is who appeared to these women and to the disciples. And this has to be false because Mark points out, again, that these women were not just some side figures that were tagalongs or fan clubs. These were women who had been personally ministered to by Jesus Christ himself. Mary Magdalene, I think Luke tells us, Mary Magdalene had had seven demons cast out of her by Jesus Christ. She loved him. She followed him. She believed in him, as did these other women, and they supported and cared for Jesus Christ and his disciples financially, relationally. They were with Jesus. And then you've got the 12 who are intimately connected to Jesus Christ, and they knew him through personal personal communication, and personal relationships. These women were important members. The disciples knew Jesus Christ. So when we see Jesus meeting with his disciples in the other gospels, we can know that it was not a mistake. More immediately, in the context of these verses that we're looking at this morning, the angelic messenger that they meet in the tomb in chapter 16, verse 6, is clear as he says, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified, he is risen. The angelic testimony is that the one who was crucified is the one who was risen. He didn't merely get up. Instead, he was raised up. It was God the Father working on his behalf to raise Jesus Christ from the dead. That is the power of the resurrection because the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the point at which God's voice comes into the story. It's God's verdict on the life and the work of his son. The Sanhedrin had called Jesus guilty. Pilate had condemned him as guilty. The people had decried him as guilty and wanted him crucified. And through it all, Jesus was silent. Jesus was silent, I believe, so that God's voice of vindication would be clearly heard. When it was finished, God raised Jesus from the dead in a vivid testimony to his acceptance of his life and his death, making the resurrection essential to our faith. Jesus had to really die that we might be really saved. Jesus had to be really raised that we might have eternal life. 1 Corinthians 15, 17 says, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Let me rephrase that. If Jesus is buried in a tomb somewhere, hidden somewhere in the world by the disciples of Jesus Christ, you have no hope. You will spend eternity damned in hell, period. Period. Jesus must not merely be alive. He must be ascended to the throne of the Father where he is interceding for us, where he has all authority, where he has accomplished all so that it is finished. It's not enough that Jesus really died to pay the price for our sins. It is also essential that he was raised to new life so that you and I might receive the promise of eternal life in him. The cross is not the end. The sealed tomb is not the end. Instead, our hope 
is in an empty tomb that we are invited into to see and to feel and to know. Not only was Jesus really dead, not only was he really raised, he really invites us in. Not merely into the empty tomb where we can witness the reality of his resurrection. No one testifies that the tomb was, there was someone still in the tomb. All of history proclaims that the tomb was empty. It's a a testimony to the early church that in reality we lost the tomb. There's significant debate in Jerusalem as to where Jesus' tomb was. They didn't keep track of it. You want to know why? First off, because there's a lot of wars that happened over there, and they were ousted and back and forth. But you want to know why? Because it's empty. Why keep track of an empty tomb? When we've got a living and raised Savior who is on our side, Jesus invites us in not only to the empty tomb, but through the empty tomb by inviting us into forgiveness and freedom and life. Jesus Christ invites us into a relationship with him. The resurrection is God's loving invitation to life for the fearful and the failures around the world and throughout history. Those that are afraid and those who are failures, just like you and just like me. As the, as the angel speaks, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who is crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. That is the testimony that God's resurrection is a loving invitation for life, for those who are fearful and those who are failures. Look who's welcome. First who's welcome is these women are invited in to the tomb and in to the testimony. These women who were f- afraid. It starts with their fear. This passage of scripture that we've read this morning and we're studying begins with their fear as they are standing far off. It ends with their fear as they tell no one and they are afraid and they are astonished and they are amazed. And there's many different reasons of why these women would have been so terrified. First and foremost, because they have a front row seat to what God is doing in the world. And regardless of what you think as you pray, God, would you just show up? God, would you just do something amazing? God, would you just show your power and your glory and your grace? Whenever that happens in Scripture, you better be ready to bring a change of pants because it's going to terrify you. And so they are terrified because they have a front row seat to what God is doing through history and for them. But second, these were women who were broken and who were downcast and who were marginalized and who were rejected and who were not listened to in their day. And they are the ones that are first welcomed into the empty tomb, into the place where Jesus lay, that they may be welcomed first into his love and into his presence through faith. But the invitation isn't just to these women who are afraid, who are marginalized, who are rejected. The invitation is through these women to the broken failures who were the disciples as well. The men who had so boldly, so brashly, so arrogantly said, Jesus, no matter what happens to you, we will never leave you. We will never abandon you. We will die with you. We will go down fighting are the very same ones who ran for the hills as soon as it got tough. They abandoned him. 
such that we see Jesus enter into the scene, build and assemble this body of disciples that he disciples, that he teaches, that he raises up, that he sends out, that are doing incredible things in his name and through his power and the power of the Holy Spirit. And they're with him and they're excited. And Jesus enters into Jerusalem, if you'll remember, with this massive crowd of supporters around him. And from that moment on, you see this downward slope where Jesus is abandoned first by the crowds, then by the disciples, and finally by the Father. And he dies abandoned and alone. And they're not even the ones who are brave enough to get up in the early hours of the morning and go and pay their respects at the tomb at all. And based on what the the angel says to Mary and to these other women, the, the, the ten were somewhere, and Peter was somewhere else. Go tell the disciples and Peter. And Peter, the one among the twelve who had spoken the most proudly, arrogantly, boldly, and yet the one who had denied Jesus even to the point of cursing himself in the process. And Jesus is thinking of him. And God pursues him through the message from this angel and through the testimony of these women. Go get Peter, the biggest failure of them all, and bring him, and bring them, and go to Galilee, and there you will see him. And all of his promises will be proven to be true. What does this say to you? What does it say to me? That there is no failure, there is no flaw, there is no betrayal that is beyond God's grace and mercy for you and for me. Amen? There's no failure, no flaw that has the ability to separate you or me from Christ. No matter where you are in your life today, God is calling you to him through the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And when you receive the love of God in Christ and believe in him as your Savior, repent of your sins, you'll be saved, you'll be set free, you're forgiven, and you're given an eternal purpose. And there is absolutely nothing that you can do from this point forward that will break that bond that will break God's love for you. God in Christ, when we have put our faith in Jesus Christ and believe in him and receive salvation by the power of the Holy Spirit, the Bible says we are then adopted by God. Who does that? God does that. He adopts us so that we are now sons and daughters. Guess what? You don't have the power or the authority or the ability to unadopt yourself from God. Oh, come on, guys. You don't have the power, the ability of anything, fault, failure, flaw, or, dis- or failure in any way to unadopt yourself from God, period. Please, Lord Jesus, restore to us the joy of our salvation. Please. If that does not fill your heart with joy, then I beg you to get on your face before God now, today. Don't leave this place and pray that prayer again and again and again and again so that when you hear that voice, when you hear that word, you can never be unadopted from God, period. You are bought, you are paid for, you are forgiven, you are free, you are empowered, you are called, you are equipped, you are a son and a daughter of God. You will not sit silent ever again. Jesus invites us in so that he can send us out. He doesn't merely invite them to see an empty tomb. 
You can go to Israel. I've been there twice, and you can see all of the churches that have been built on top of everything in the world. And guess what? It's just a bunch of rocks and a bunch of churches with a bunch of people bowing and scraping and kissing and licking and doing all kinds of nasty stuff to icons and everything else. That doesn't change anybody. It's an encounter with Jesus Christ and empowering by the Holy Spirit that then becomes enough to send us out. It's not just enough that these women see an empty tomb. They're commissioned as the very first missionaries to tell the good news of the empty tomb. Can you imagine that responsibility? Being the very first messengers that Jesus is alive. And it was three women. Why is that important? Because women were not listened to then. They were not people that were allowed to even give a testimony in court because they weren't considered faithful or truthful. No one would have listened. So why is it important that all all of the Gospels tell us that it was women who were the first ones who met Jesus Christ because if they made the thing up, they wouldn't have chosen women in the first place. They would have put a man there. They would have put someone that society would have listened to. Instead, the Gospel of Jesus Christ comes to the marginalized and the rejected and the unwanted, the abused. First and foremost, to the women who loved him, who knew him, who needed him, who served him, and they were faithful to him. The fact that Mark and the other Gospels testify to this is a testimony to the truth. The truth that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. Jesus first appeared to the women who had loved and cared for him during his earthly ministry so that he might love and care for them by his eternal ministry. You see, the most astonishing and amazing truth of the Gospel of Mark is that Jesus chooses to take the marginalized and the messed up and transforms them by his grace into his messengers that he sends into the world to manifest the kingdom of God. The most astonishing, amazing truth of the gospel of Mark is that Jesus chooses to take the marginalized in the women and the messed up in the failed disciples and he transforms them by his grace into his messengers that he then sends out into the world to manifest his kingdom on earth through the declaration and the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's hope. Jesus invites you in. And it's in and out of that relationship with Jesus Christ, transforming you from the inside out into sons and daughters of God who are no longer bound by sin, who are no longer weighed down by the burdens of this world, but instead who are transformed by the ins- from the inside out by the power of the Holy Spirit to be those who are citizens of a heavenly kingdom that supersedes America, that supersedes Rome, that supersedes everything else, and no matter what it is that comes our way, we are citizens and vocal ambassadors of the gospel of Jesus Christ and God. God's eternal kingdom. That's where our first allegiance is. Period. And that is what we are called to go into the world as those who have been transformed with a message of transformation for those that are around us. So let me ask you, what's holding you back? What is it that has you paralyzed? And standing on that ladder rung, afraid to take the dive into the cool, crisp, clear water that is a life abandoned to Jesus. 
Are you afraid of the world? Are you afraid that somehow you're not real sure that this is really true? Because let's be real honest. If we really believe this is true, when we're really transformed by this, when we're really living in this truth, day upon day upon day upon day, when we are really living in the love of God and in love with God, we will tell other people. I can tell you one thing. If you meet my in-laws, it ain't going to be long before the conversation moves to talking about their daughter, their son, their grandchildren. You want to know why? Because they love them. And we talk about the things that we love. If you're not talking about Jesus, I question your love for him. Are you living in love with Jesus? If not, then the gospel is for you. Whether it's for the very first time that you trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior today, or whether you are a child of God from way back when you were nine years old and you're just walking in fear right now, the gospel says, come in. Come into the love and to the grace and the faithfulness of God who has done everything necessary for your salvation. To a God who is not angry with you, to a God who's not disappointed in you, to a God who loves you because everything that is necessary, not only for your salvation, but for your life and godliness, has been accomplished by Jesus, period. There's nothing that you can do to be saved, nothing that you can do to keep yourself saved. It is all the work from God and of God from beginning to end. Rest in that. Receive the love of God each and every day and live in that love, in love with God in front of the world. That's what Christian ministry is. Christian ministry is simply this, loving other people by loving Jesus in front of them wherever you are. Don't make it more complicated with that. Live your life in love with Jesus no matter who's watching. Because the greatest thing that you have to be afraid of, which is death and hell and eternity separated from God, has been paid for and forgiven and broken down by Jesus Christ's work on the cross and the empty tomb. So live in love with God and live in love with freedom and live in love with Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. What is paralyzing you? Is it your fear? Is it your faith? That I invite you right here, right now, Lean into Jesus. Lean upon the Holy Spirit. Get on your knees and cry out to the crucified and risen Jesus to transform you, to fill you with faith that you might experience the freedom and love of God for all eternity. And let us, brothers and sisters, walk away not only from this morning, but from our time in the Gospel of Mark, astonished and amazed in such a way that we're not paralyzed, but as those who are astonished and amazed in such a way that we're compelled to go and tell others what we know to be true. Jesus is the Son of God who lived a perfect, spotless, righteous life that you and I are expected to live but can't because of our sin, who died a death that you and I deserve because of our sin, and who was raised to new life so that we might receive an everlasting life that we do not deserve at all. Do you believe that today? Are you living that today, this week? If not, cry out to God. If so, find someone else and take them into your wing 
that you might love and disciple and shepherd them because we're not meant to do this alone. And if you're here this morning and you don't know what it is to be transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, I invite you, do not leave this place today. The gospel, Jesus' death, his burial, his resurrection is both objectively true and experientially true. And I implore you, I beg you, do not leave this place without crying out to Jesus Christ to transform you and transform your future. And that is a prayer that he will answer here and now, today. I invite you, if you would, to bow your heads and close your eyes and go before the Lord in prayer. And ask him, ask him, what is it that is keeping you from living a life abandoned to the gospel? Is it your fear? Is it past failures? Is it no faith at all? Then I would invite you to seek God and pray that the Holy Spirit would lead you in the way that you can turn from your fear, from your failure, from your faithlessness, and into the arms of Jesus Christ that are wide open for you today. And I'll pray and close this out in a moment.